So we're in Hebrews tonight. We're going to finish chapter 7, a milestone in our, in our study in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 23 through 28 in a study I'm calling, What Does He Do All Day? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your grace, Lord. We love you and we um, know, Lord, that you're with us. Lord, we thank you for that, that promise, Lord, that truth that you, Lord, through our faith, have made us alive. Lord, we were dead in trespasses and sins, but yet, Lord, by your grace, Lord, you have worked on our heart, Lord. You have, um, Lord, raised us from the dead, Lord, and given us the ability to believe in you. And now, Lord, we know that you're not done yet. Lord, you're continuing that work presently, Lord, in heaven for us right now, interceding for us, praying for us, being an advocate, being the head of the body, being our bridegroom, all these things, Lord, I pray that these would become a reality, that we would understand that our faith is not a religion, but it's an active, living relationship. And so, encourage us tonight, Lord, we pray, wherever we are, or whatever state we're in, in Jesus' name, amen. So, have you ever wondered what some people do all day? Well, the children's writer and illustrator, Richard Scarry, helped children out when he wrote the book titled, What Do People Do All Day? Right? It's a classic book in our house. What do people do all day? It has you know, the firemen and stuff like that and shows kids what people do all day. Tabloid magazines try to help adults answer this question. They give 95% false information and 5% true, concerning, mainly concerning what the royals do. And who, who really cares what the royals do? Maybe the Kansas City royals, but not what the royal family, the president and his family and different celebrities, right? They try to focus on, well, what do they do all day? And they go around and follow these people around. Now, I bring this question up because tonight in our text, we're told one thing that Jesus does all day. Look at the end of verse 25. It says, Christ always lives to make intercession for those who come to God through him. So to think about what other people do is really a waste of time and is useless. It can just lead, it, it can just lead us to a temptation to either gossip or envy. But to think about what Jesus does all day for us is encouraging, it's edifying. And I believe that's one of the reasons why the writer puts this here in the book. We know the background, we've been talking about the context. These believers were in a hard situation. They were under physical persecution. They were under emotional persecution. They were under persecution from their country. You know, it was a, a national time of patriotism and here they were, these believers set apart for the Lord. And the Lord wanted to encourage them to press forward to maturity. And he wanted to encourage them that regardless of where they were, they can know that they could because Jesus is in heaven interceding for them at that moment, at that time. And the Lord wants us to encourage us in that same way as well. All of us here tonight come from different situations, different backgrounds, different struggles, different temptations, different trials. But but nevertheless, we serve the same Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. And the Lord wants us to encourage us by the fact that he is interceding for us right now that we can press forward to maturity. To press forward regardless of what's in our path, the Lord has given us the power to go forward and we can rest in that. So as we talk about who Jesus is and what he's doing, we'll learn two things tonight. Number one, what uh, what Christ does all day. And second, who Christ is day 
uh, all day and every day. So first, in verses 23 to 25, we learn what Christ does all day. Now, in chapter 7, we've looked at a couple arguments from the writer to show the Hebrews that Jesus is greater than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Now, the purpose of doing this is because these guys were thinking about turning back. Their temptation, their trials were, were driving them back to Judaism. And the writer got word of this and said, no, there is no compromise. You guys need to press forward because there is no reason to go back. What you have in Jesus is so much greater. He is the fulfillment of those things. He said, just look at Aaron and his priesthood and compare it to Jesus and his priesthood. We began at the beginning of chapter 7 by pointing back to the Old Testament scriptures. He said, look at Melchizedek and his priesthood. The Bible says that he was actually greater than Abraham and Levi. And Jesus is obviously greater than Melchizedek, so Jesus is greater than Aaron. The second argument was by comparing the order of Christ's priesthood to the order of Aaron's priesthood. And he said, these guys are always changing. But look at Christ and his priesthood. They're eternal. They're unchanging. And then third, the focus is to compare priests with priests now. So he says, look at these priests, but look at Christ, our high priest. And as we're going to see, there is no comparison. Because Jesus is eternal. He's unchanging. And he's able to minister to us in a unique way because of that. So in verse 23, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Now, those of you that are sports fans know the value of an athlete's consistent, long career, right? Think of Cal Ripken. Consistency, a long career. Think about that in comparison to someone who's only good for a season or two, like Kaepernick or something like that. You know, if you're, you know? I mean, think about that. Think about a, a consistent career like Brett Favre, who just was initiated into the Hall of Fame. I mean, that guy was like a trooper. Started playing, I think, what, in the mid-80s? Or no, no, or, or maybe early 90s. Yeah, that, that's more accurate. Yeah, or, you know, sometime then. But, you know, but he had a long, consistent career. Now, think about this in terms of the priesthood now, as we're comparing Jesus. These guys, the priests in the Old Testament, under the law, they were only able to serve for a time. They began serving at age 30. They actually had to retire by age 50, but they would continue in a capacity of high priest until they died right? But think about Jesus. He continues on forever because he is eternal. Scholars say there's probably some 83 high priests starting with Aaron, some good and some bad. Even the good ones, take, take the best. They were only able to minister, minister for so long. But Jesus, in contrast, who is God, who is the God-man, he's eternal. He doesn't change. He never dies. So there is no end to his priestly ministry. There is no retirement for the Lord. He's not going to die. So the priesthood will never change. Now, yes, Jesus did die physically on the cross. But remember, three days later, God rose him again from the dead. And he had this glorified body. Christ ministered on earth for 40 days after his resurrection, being seen by many infallible priests, Luke said. And then after 40 days, Christ ascended into heaven and now Christ continues to minister as priest, teaching and ministering. And so I love that, and that's what the book of Acts illustrates. You see, Jesus is on earth for 40 days, ministering, teaching, and then he ascends into heaven. And then from our human point of view, we think, okay, Christ's gone, so now we just continue on. Well, no, the fact is, is he doesn't stop ministering. He doesn't stop. All that Jesus began both to do and teach, Acts begins. 
and then, and then it continues on. So Jesus is in heaven continuing on as our eternal priest. His ministry has never changed. Think about the book of Revelation. That's some 60 years after Jesus died. Revelation is probably written in the mid-90s. Jesus died on the cross probably around 33 AD. And so it shows us that Jesus was continuing to teach. Now, the Bible has been complete, God's inspired word, but Jesus is also continuing to teach today through his Holy Spirit, through the complete word of God. That ministry hasn't changed. He's still instructing us through his word. Also, his ministry doesn't stop. The Lord is continuing to minister to believers as a priest would, David. Look at verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through, faith, through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Therefore, or based on what kind of priest we have, or in other words, since Jesus is eternal, he can save those eternally who come to God through faith in him. So based on the priest that we have, we can kind of have the, we can have this kind of salvation that we have, the kind of salvation that we need. You see, as believers, we can have confidence and hope that God will save them or believers to the uttermost. Now, yes, we like to say from the uttermost, and Christ can do that, right? He can save us from the uttermost. We're all sinners, regardless of what kind of sinner you were, whether you consider yourself a noble sinner, right, with, with education and with culture, or whether you're just a rotten sinner, right? And whatever kind of sinner you were, you're a sinner, and Christ needs to save you, and, and he's able to save from the uttermost. But this is not what this text is saying. He is able to save to the uttermost. The word save refers to your salvation in full or in salvation in its completion. The word uttermost means forever. And so Jesus is able to save us in a complete way, and he's able to save us forever. It's a strong verse for our security in Christ. Now notice what this is based on. First of all, this is based on a person coming to Christ, those who come to God through him. No one can be saved apart from, from Jesus Christ. No one can save themselves, but only as the grace of God works on our heart and draws us to Jesus can we respond in faith and be born again. Now, once we're born again, God doesn't stop the work there. He justifies us, he declares us righteous, but he continues that work. It's called sanctification. It's the process in which Jesus makes us more like himself through the Holy Spirit. He uses circumstances of life for that. He uses his word as a tool for that. And one day we'll be glorified. That's the future aspect. We'll awaken in the likeness of Jesus, whether it's referring to the rapture, which I hope happens, right, to me, or whether it's referring to believer's death, which is the Bible calls sleep. Not soul sleep, but sleep. Your body lays and rests in the ground, but your soul is active as you go to be with Christ. One day the Lord is gonna awaken that body up Wake up as he comes back, right? The dead in Christ will rise first. Those bodies of those believers who are with Jesus right now are gonna be raised up and they're gonna meet and they're gonna have glorified bodies. And those who are alive and remain, which I hope is us, we're gonna be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye and we're gonna meet them in, in the air. We're gonna have a big reunion. And so this is our salvation. It's a total package. Often we just think of just the faith part. But no, it's a total package. And so when the Bible says you will be saved, it means you'll be saved completely. And the Bible promises us that the Lord will keep us in that salvation. The fact that he's able to save us to the uttermost. 
I like that passage in 1 Peter 1, 5 where it says that we have been kept by the power of God through faith. The Lord keeps us by his power through faith. Peter says that we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us. And he says, and you're kept by the power of God. So it's got your name on it, and the Lord has sealed us by his spirit, and we can, we'll receive it. Now let's talk a little bit about this intercession of Christ. Now, we need to keep in mind that the Bible teaches that God is a trinity, right? We, we all know that, doctrine 101. God is a trinity, one God and three persons, right? Not three gods, but one God and three persons. They're all equal. Uh, you know, they're all coexisting. They're all eternal. Now, we believe this doctrine, and we know it's biblical, but we cannot fully understand it, right? I mean, think about it from a human perspective. We think, oh, man. I have no idea how I can explain that. And there really is no human explanation. We just come to the Bible and we believe it's true and we understand that it's true and we explain that it's true. Well, I think that when we talk about Christ's ministry with the Father in heaven, there are some things that I think that we'll never fully understand until we get to heaven. And you find this out when you read theologians and commentators because nobody explains what this means because nobody knows what it means, right? I mean, there are some things that we can comment on it based on Christ's past ministry, and since he doesn't change, we can apply them today. But when we get to heaven, we'll finally figure out and finally understand, wow, that's what it really meant. That's what it really meant that you were interceding for me. So let's just keep that in mind that God's eternal and that God knows everything, right? And, and we're human, and we just come to the Bible and just believe what it tells us and trust us. But yet we can glean things from the scriptures to kind of help us understand it a little more. So let's talk about this intercession. First, let's talk about what is not. Jesus is not continually, offer, not continually offering himself for our sins. He's not continually dying every time we sin. The Bible says he was offered once for sins. So he's, he's been completed. So the doctrine of transubstantiation that the Catholics do, in which the Eucharist turns into the literal body and blood of Jesus, that's not true. It's unbiblical, right? So he died once and for all. For, for, um, for our sins. Also, it's not true to say that Christ needs, needs to continually plead and appease God in order to keep us saved. You know, so God's not in heaven saying, just let me at him, let me at him. And Christ said, no, no, don't. And, and somehow he appeases God and he says, okay, I'll, I'll let Jake slide this time. You know, and then, and then I mess up again. And so, you know, it's like, no, it's, that's not what it means at all. And so um, that's not what, you know, the Bible refers to as Christ's intercession. Now, since Christ doesn't change, we can look at his past ministry and see some of the ways that he interceded for believers and, and get some insight. And also we'll look at some other passages too. John 17 shows us that Jesus prayed and interceded for disciples and his church. He prayed for the disciples there in John 17. It's called his high priestly prayer, right? So his ministry doesn't change. And so there the Lord prayed for them that the Lord would keep them and that the Lord would sanctify them. And then he prayed for his church, that the Lord would keep them and keep us one as he is one. And he prayed that, you know, that, you know, that the Lord would watch over us. And also Jesus interceded for Peter in Luke chapter 22, verses um, 31 through 32. Let me read it to you. Here's what Peter, uh, Jesus told Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So Bible teachers are agreed that Christ's prayer on behalf of Peter kept him secure and also gave him assurance 
in his salvation. Peter could have known that the Lord had grace for him to endure this trial and this temptation that was coming his way. It would have been an encouragement for Peter. Now, in the same way, the writer points this out to the Hebrews. He tells us, hey, listen, Christ is, never stops praying for us, and he'll, never, and he'll never die, so he'll continue to do this for us. He will keep us secure in our salvation because he will never stop praying for us. And just the same as he prayed for Peter, even so he is praying for us. It is not us who keep ourselves saved. It's the Lord. He's the one who intercedes for us. The Bible doesn't say, yeah, you have to keep yourself saved to the uttermost. He says, no, you are saved to the uttermost because Christ intercedes on your behalf. Now, that doesn't cancel out responsibility, right? You're saved by faith alone, but the faith is saved is never alone, right? Your faith should produce works. If it's not a, a true, you know, faith that produces fruits, then maybe it's not a true saving faith. And so, you know, so we need to keep that side of the coin. But nevertheless, the writer said, hey, you can be encouraged because of the fact that Christ is praying for you. Also, I think we can think about this in regards to our trials and temptations that come our way. We can know that the Lord has given us sufficient grace because Christ is praying for us. So whatever comes our way, if the Lord allows it, we know that he is praying for us. And if he's praying for us, that means that we have the grace to endure that trial. So that's sweet. As, as these things come our way, we think, you know what? I can endure this because not by my own strength, not by my own might, but you know what? Christ is praying for me right now. And his prayer is not in vain. He's not just saying it just to say it. He's saying it, and the Father will hear his prayer. He'll give me the grace to press forward to maturity. Now, this is an amazing concept, the fact that Christ is alive right now. Let's just sink in for a second. Jesus is alive right now in heaven. It's not just a thing that we made up. He's actually alive in a resurrected body right now, just as the president is in the White House or wherever else he is. Maybe he's on a vacation, right? Um, tabloids tell me that, whatever it might be. You know, wherever he is, just as the president is somewhere, even so Christ, the high priest who's righteous, is, um, is somewhere. Now, this is so amazing. I don't want to stop dwelling on this present ministry. Let's talk about some other things that the Bible says concerning Christ's present ministry. The Bible says that Christ also works as an advocate on our behalf. We're told this in 1 John 2, 1-2, and many apply this to the intercessory prayer as well uh, of Christ. John says in 1 John 2, he says, My little children, these things I have written to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. An advocate it was a def is a defense lawyer. It's one who pleads a case. And John reminds believers that when we sin, we can have hope that God will forgive us because Jesus, God's resurrected son, is with the Father. Now this is important because Revelation calls uh, um, Satan the accuser of the brethren. That's what Satan does. He accuses us before the throne day and night. It's, it's a constant attack on believers. But God's mind or God's heart cannot be changed or swayed. We know this because Jesus has paid our price in full. He's paid for our sins past, present, and future. So there's no, pers there's no persuading God or no change in his mind. John says, based on this fact, this, this work of Christ, we have a propitiation. Now notice this, I, I just noticed when, when I was reading this, um, this text, 
It's a present work. Uh, you know, we use this text to talk about how Christ's work on the cross was a propitiation for our sins, and that's true. It was. It satisfied the righteousness of God. But notice, the propitiation is referred to in the present tense. He is the propitiation. A propitiation is an acceptable sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. So there needs to be no words from Christ as Satan accuses us before the throne. Christ doesn't have to get up and give a big case and a big argument for, for why the Father should forgive us. The fact that Christ is with the Father and the fact that he is the slain lamb of God speaks louder than words. His life, the fact that he was slain and risen again from the dead and at the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of God, is, is case in point for our redemption. This is why Paul could say, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? Nobody. Paul goes on to say in verses 34 through 35 of Romans 8, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And so this intercession of Christ is looking at the aspect of the fact that he has completed the work of God and now he's sitting at the right hand of God. Now, from a priestly point of view, this would shock Jewish believers because the priests never sat down in the temple. They were always standing up. They were always working because redemption was never done. They had to continually sacrifice. But Christ, when he did his work on the cross for our sins, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of God, and now nothing can condemn us. No, acu no accusation. Christ is there, and his life intercedes for us. He's continually praying for us. No person, place, or thing has any power over the work of Christ on our behalf. Daily, continually, on our behalf, before the throne of God. Just when you thought it, it couldn't get any better, it does. Christ is also preparing a place for us. John 14, 1 through 3, listen to what Jesus said. Let not your heart be troubled. See, all these passages are to encourage us. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my, father's house are, in my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so Christ is presently in heaven preparing a place for us. He's our bridegroom. And that's what Jewish bridegrooms did in the time of betrothal, right? It had to last at least nine months. And the betrothal was set. The bridegroom would go away and prepare a place for the bride, and he would come unexpectedly to sweep the bride up. The bride was to be ready, always ready. And even so, Jesus is in heaven right now, presently preparing a place for us. What is that place? Some people say, well, it's a glorified body. Well, Jesus said it's a mansion. It's going to be something beautiful. It's going to be something um, for us as he comes back and raptures us you know, we'll be able to go back with him and enjoy. Until that day, until the Lord comes back for us and raptures us, the Lord is calling out people for his name, by his grace. He's filling them with the Holy Spirit and he's sending them out to make disciples. Jesus is at work in this way. He's, the Bible says he is building his church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He said, you are Peter, but on this rock I'll build my church. The rock is referring to the confession that Peter had, not Peter himself. 
you are the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon that, that statement, that foundation, I, w- I will build my church. Anyone who says that the church has failed says that Jesus is a poor performer in his work. You've, you've given Jesus a, an employee evaluation and you're saying that he's failing. Not good. Bad form, Peter, right? Can't do that. Jesus is building his church. Maybe not in the way that we think he should, but he's continuing that work. It will not fail. The gates of Hades should not prevail, you know, prevail against it. Neither death, nor you know, persecution, nor paganism, whatever it might be, will not prevail against Christ's church. He is in heaven as the head of the body, directing his church, his different members, where they should go and what they should do. Now, just when you think the present ministry of Christ is done, we have the seven I am statements of Christ. Rather than going through all these I am statements, most of you know them, I'll just give you the scripture reference and, and what Christ said about himself. All of these I am statements are all in the present tense. And so Christ, since Christ doesn't change, we can accept that I am statement as the present work of Christ on our behalf. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What does that mean? John six thirty five. the fact that we can come to him and be satisfied. He said, take of this water I give you and you'll never thirst. Right? Anybody who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of the abundance of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. John 7, 37. Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12. Right? We're in a dark world, but Christ is the light. And as we follow him, we will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 10, 9. Jesus is the gate. Right? He's the door. If anyone enters by him, will be saved and will go out and find, find pasture. So Christ will protect his church. Christ will lead us into the places of Stillwater Hill, lead us into those places of, of green pastures. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's what he told um, those folks as he, you know, as he was there, as Lazarus died. He said, hey, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though they may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you need direction, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we're absolutely useless. But in Christ, the Lord will bear fruit and fruit that remains. So these verses, I believe, are just scratching the surface. I think that there's a lot more of the present ministry that we can point out from the scriptures. But from these things, we really should have a response, right? Our response, first of all, is to be encouraged. That's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to encourage us. Let not your heart be troubled. Think about what Christ is doing presently on your behalf. The Lord has given us the basis for a victorious Christian life. It's not based on us and the work that we do, but it's based upon the work that he is doing presently. Yes, on the work that he has done in making our salvation possible, but on the work that he is doing on our behalf, the fact that he will give us life and lead us into still waters. But second, since Christ is presently busy working for us, we should be presently busy working for him. Just like an engaged couple gets ready by doing their part, even so Jesus is doing his part, we as his bride should do our part. You know how it is before a wedding, man, it's a busy time. People are preparing, getting ready, right? And, you know, all this preparation, it's all a labor of love because it's all an expectation of that coming day. And even so, for you and I as believers, as we think about what Christ is doing on our behalf in heaven, 
we as a bride don't want to just sit around. We, we want to be ready. We want to be beautiful for the Lord when he comes back for us. Now, second, now in verses 26 to 28, we learn who Christ is all day and every day. It says, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Now, the writer now points to the type of priest we have. He points to the person of Christ. The type of priest is fitting for us. Now, that doesn't mean that we deserve Christ, but it means that we need him. We need a priest like this. Unless we have a priest like this, unless we have a savior like this, we cannot be saved. There was no hope through Aaron and the priesthood underneath the law. As we saw last week, they couldn't bring us to perfection. It's not how God wanted us to relate to him, but it's only through Christ. Can we be saved to the uttermost? The writer says, just look at who Christ is. Jesus is holy. He is perfectly pure. This refers to his relationship Godward. Jesus is harmless. Christ was without evil as far as his thoughts, even towards man. He's totally innocent. He's undefiled. Christ was unstained and freed from all defilement. He's separate from sinners. Christ cannot be influenced or changed by sinners. We can, right? Sometimes culture creeps into the church and creeps into our lives, and the Lord checks us on that, and we need to repent of it. But not Christ in heaven. He stays absolutely separate, but yet intimate with with believers as we come to him by grace. Jesus is higher than the heavens. Christ rose from the dead and has passed through the heavens into the Holy of Holies. The high priest can only pass, you know, go into the Holy of Holies once a year. But as we'll see, that was just a picture of the heavenly tabernacle where Christ is there now seated at the right hand of God. Simply put, we have a perfect priest that can save us. Verse 27, who does not need daily as, though high, as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So now the writer shows not only is he a perfect priest, but he's a perfect sacrifice. Because Jesus is perfect, he was able to offer a once for all sacrifice for our sins. It wasn't, you know, kind of thing where he did it and he's like, okay, well, now you got to do it again because it wasn't really complete. No, it was a once for all thing. Right? He died once for all, and that was sufficient. And then God proved that he paid our price by raising him again from the dead. Verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. So now the writer composes, uh, closes this chapter with another comparison. He said, look at Jesus and these priests under the law. The priests under the law came about by their genealogy, right? It was the law that only those from the line of Aaron could be priests. But yet those priests that came based on that law were weak. They were sinners who needed a savior. But in contrast, Jesus, who was prophetically pointed to in Psalm 110.4, God said he would not relent. He would fulfill that promise. God has proven to us that he is our sufficient sacrifice and priest by raising him again from the dead and ascended ascending him into heaven. So the writer's argument is clear, and it's very strong. Without a doubt, Jesus is greater than Aaron in his priesthood. But how about for you and I tonight? In closing, we don't have to speculate what Jesus is doing for us. We don't have to sit around and think, what does he do all day in heaven? No, Jesus tells us exactly what it is, and it's accurate information. It's not like the tabloids. It's true. It's unchanging. 
He is actively working on our behalf, preparing a home for us. Until that day, the Lord has given us the strength to be encouraged and the grace to press forward to do a labor of love until he comes back. Amen?